guys can have a seat. Amen. Thank you, worship team. I don't know about you, but I want to continue to worship. But don't worry. Um, we're going to worship together at the very end. Responding to the message today out of the book of Revelation, right? So we've been in this series of the book of Revelation, and the Apostle John gets this vision from what the future is going to look like. And today we're going to look at chapter 4 and 5. And coincidentally, it's all about worship. And so we're going to spend some time looking at the picture and this vision that he gets in these two chapters. Then we're going to apply it to our lives, and then we're going to live that out through summer worshiping. That's kind of what our morning is going to look like. But before we get there and before we dive into the Word of God, and if you want to bring out your Bibles or pull out your phone to follow along, I'm going to throw a lot of information at you. Um, so let me apologize in advance, but uh, make sure that, um, yeah, you can find all of that in the sermon notes later as well. There's a lot of verses. But what we want to do is I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been to somebody's house and you walk in and you're just like in amazement? Like you think you're walking into a home of somebody and it's like, I don't know, like the season finale of like the extreme home makeover. Like you walk in and you're like, wow, this is incredible. Has that ever happened to you? You know, if you're like me, I always feel in a little like guilty because I know like I kind of get a little jealous in those moments and think, oh man, I like that and I wonder if I can pull that off. Or maybe it wasn't a house. Maybe it was a building that you've been in before that you're like, wow, this is incredible. Well, to me, it happened to me in 2015. Um, and it happened in Burundi, Africa, out of all places. Small country in Burundi where we have a ministry there. And my friends and I, small team, we just landed in Burundi. And our missionary partners picked us up from the airport. And we thought we were heading to the small Catholic retreat center that we were usually staying at. And um, by Catholic retreat center, I mean there's no hot water, period. And let's call the electricity iffy at best. Um, so you never know kind of what you're getting. So this is what we expected. And as soon as we stepped into the car, our missionary partners turned to us and said, hey, you've been invited. I'm like, oh, that's great. Where? He's like, to the presidential palace in Burundi. I said, whoa. He's like, the vice president wants to meet and talk with you for a few moments. So little behold, instead of running to the Catholic Dream Center, we are on our way to the White House equivalent of Burundi. And so on this journey, you know, what happens is you pass several checkpoints and to draw you a picture. So what that means, it's like soldiers fully dressed up with MK-47s all over the place. And then there's always the, I call him the smiley bazooka guy, okay? I'm not kidding you. If you've been to Burundi, you know what I'm talking about. Every time I've been around officials and the government, and it happened quite a bit, we had, like, there's always the happy bazooka guy standing in the corner. So it's a fully dressed soldier that has, like, this ginormous bazooka around his neck. And he's got a big smile on his face. It's the most weirdest thing you've ever seen. Um, you know, he must have, I really like his job, apparently. Uh, maybe he gets great benefits. I don't know. But anyway, he is always smiling. So as we pass along the street, we pass him as well. We get to the presidential palace. We park our car. We leave all of our belongings. Nothing's allowed in. No cell phones, no laptops. Anything has to stay in the car. And go through a couple of more metal detector checks and all that kind of stuff, making sure security is very tight. And then we find our way walking up the stairs to the palace, just this magnificent building. We're walking past members of the media who look at us, and they're like wondering because they don't know who we are, so they're kind of trying to figure out what we even do there. Um, long and behold, we're in this next room, which is the preparation room. The preparation room is where they sit you down, and they tell you exactly what's about to happen. So somebody from the government comes to you and says, okay, here are some things you need to know. This is how you properly shake hands 
with the vice president. This is who is even allowed to talk when you're being asked a question. They cover things like um, where to sit and how to behave in those moments. And when they feel comfortable that you're ready to handle this responsibility, then they took us into what we call the Oval Office of Burundi. Now, it's nothing as fancy as the U.S., don't get me wrong, but it is still an incredible room. And so I remember sitting there, my dad next to me, and I was sitting there and I was thinking, wow, I wonder who else has sat in this room before. I wonder what country or government leaders or business leaders have sat in this room before making decisions for an entire nation. I wonder what, what decisions had been made that will impact millions of lives of people here. And just the magnitude of that room was almost overwhelming. And then the door opens and... His Excellency, which is how you address the Vice President in case you ever meet him, um, walks in the door and he luckily gave us a warm embrace because I also realized I don't want to be in trouble with this guy in this room right now. So luckily, though, um, all he wanted to talk about is just appreciate our ministry, everything that we had done and how we've helped people in his country and ended up actually becoming great friends and I've been to his personal residency. Just a great guy. But long story short, though, it wasn't necessarily the meeting and what we've talked about that mattered. What I remember and everybody that was on that trip remembers is the magnificence of that room, the magnitude and the awe to be in the presence of so much power and authority and almost royalty in a country like this. Now, why would I tell you the story? It's simple because that's kind of the picture that we get to see in Revelations 4 and 5. Because the, the Apostle John describes what's about to happen. And so we can read on to this. This is what it says. And then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice as I heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must have happened after this. So what's happening here is that Jesus invites us into heaven. So if you think a room in Burundi is important, imagine what it will be like one day to open heaven itself and we get to be in the throne room of God, in the throne room of Jesus who invited us in. If you were with us last week, you remember that we talked about the seven letters and the seven churches and the things that they do good and bad and what they should be doing better. And at the end of chapter three, actually, it ends up with these words. And I think it's significant. It says this, look, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus saying, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. So chapter three ends with, Jesus saying, I'm knocking and I'm waiting at the door. And now chapter 4, those gates are open and we get to go into this room. Now there's a lot happening in this room. And so I'm going to walk you through and I'm going to give you a little bit of color commentary as we look at all the different verses that describe this throne room of Jesus. So Revelation 4 says then this, And instantly I was in the Spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone was sitting on it. The one sitting on um, the throne was, with, was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of the emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. So first we see the throne. The throne is mentioned 40 times in the book of Revelations, and every time it is mentioned, it's always mentioned in relation to the sovereignty, the power, the authority of God. But also, it always talks about the judgment, which is the picture we are about to enter into. But in the midst of judgment, and maybe you've heard a message about Revelation before, and it's like, oh, now there comes the doom and gloom. That's not what we're talking about here, because even in those verses, we see 
that Jesus already is merciful. Let's look at the verse again, and I highlighted for you at the end here. Do you see the end where it says, and the glow of an emerald circle, his throne like a rainbow. The reason why the rainbow is mentioned here is because it goes back to Genesis 6. If you've been at church, if you grew up, or even if you don't, you're probably familiar with the story of Noah. Noah um, is in a time in the earth when everybody is kind of evil, and everybody's bad, and honestly, God is fed up with everything, and he said, I'm just going to end it all until he comes across Noah and his family, and because of him and, and his faithfulness, the earth gets rescued and all the animals, you just know the ark story. Um, but long and behold, at the end of that story, Jesus, God makes a promise to Noah, and he said, you know what, I will never, ever bring judgment on the earth like I have and was planning on this day. And what does he give him as a sign? What does he give him as a reminder that this will never, ever happen again? It's a rainbow. It's his sign of mercy, which is why, as we're looking at the throne, there's a rainbow to remind us that, yes, there is a judgment, but God is merciful at the same time. Now, what else can we discover about this room? Let's look at verse 4. It says, 24 thrones surrounded him, 24 elders sat on them, and they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their head. Just briefly, those 24 is the 12 um, are representing the, the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and then the other 12 are the apostles and the disciples of Jesus from the New Testament, kind of all of God's redemptive work from the Old Testament and the New Testament that are present in this room. But it goes on then to say this, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumble of thunder, which that's what the Bible talks about when we talk about judgment. These are symbols of the impending judgment that is about to happen. And then in front of the thrones, there were seven torches with burning flames, which is a sevenfold spirit of God. Simply to say that every time you read the number seven, just kind of imagine it means whole, perfect, pure. So the sevenfold spirits are also in this room. And then it goes on to say, in front of the throne, there was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystals. So when the, when the Bible talks, when Revelation here talks about the sea, there's two elements to it. One of them is if you know and if you live close by the water, and especially if you've been, um, if you live by the water close to a couple of weeks ago when we had this massive rainstorm and all the waves were crashing, there is a lot of danger and evil always associated when we read about waters and seas, right? I mean, you remember Jesus in the boat and the crash that wave in. So that's one part of this. But I think in this situation, it looks at the other picture of water. And honestly, it's one of my favorite things that I and my wife Rachel get to do is we like to sit out in the water and just listen to the waves, listen to the calming sound of the waves just crashing in. And I think that's what Revelation 6 talks about here. But then it goes on to say this, in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes on the front and the back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. Now, I don't know about you. I had to read this verse five times, and I really don't still have the creativity to imagine what we're looking at here. Uh, maybe you're better at this than I am. But there's definitely something going on. And I know there's a lot of debate out there about, okay, what does that mean to be the ox? And what does it mean to be the eagle and the human and the lion and all those things? And I think sometimes those things distract us from the true message. 
Because honestly, I can't answer that question for you. And as we said at the beginning of the book of Revelation, a lot of times John also uses poetry. And I wonder if this is one of those moments where he uses poetry, where he uses an image for us too almost big to imagine, to understand that God is a creative God, that there are things outside of our control of our imagination that we don't understand. And so maybe that is what he's trying to talk about here. But I want to jump ahead to uh, Revelations 5, verse 1, where it says this, And then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the throne who was sitting on the throne. There was a writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. So the seal here, Jim Sam, a pastor and friend of ours from Grand Mission, put it, put it this way. He said, The sealed scroll represent the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah and Daniel. The seven seals and the book are the seven... Of the book are the seven seals of Revelation 6 and following. What happens next? So now something happens to those seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth was able to open and read it. And this is John breaking. He says this, And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. So in here, in this situation, John describes a problem to us in heaven because the seals and the scrolls is the future. It represents what's going to come next. And so he realizes that nobody is worthy that is in this room present to open it. And think about it. I mean, we're talking about Old Testament, New Testament. I mean, that means Moses is in there, um, you know, Abraham, Joshua, whoever is your favorite king, King David, none of them are able to open the scroll. I mean, Jesus' disciples are in there as well, and they're not good enough to open the scroll. Even Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, is still not able, despite all the great things he's done, to open the scroll. And what happens then is that John just gets upset. He realizes this is a problem, and he wants us to unlock the future, but we can't ourselves. We need somebody to step in. And then what happens is one of my favorite things that happens next in the book of Revelations. Um, but before we get there, there's a song that we're going to sing later, and I want to just give you the lyrics so you can reflect on them now. And when we sing them, it's going to be your chance to respond. And this is what the song says. It's actually been stuck in my head for weeks now, so I'm looking forward to pass it along to you, and you guys get it stuck in the weeks. But it says this, all creation is groaning. Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? And then he goes on to say, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? This is the situation where nobody is worthy. And then this happens. But one of the 24 elders said, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So when we look at it, the lion of Judah, it's a messianic prophecy that talks about Jesus. If you are a C.S. Lewis fan and you like the Chronicles of Narnia, that's why we have Aslan, the lion, as the main character because it represents Jesus and all that he has done for us. He is the majestic one. He's the one that had the victory. He's the one that overcame it all. And because of that, he is 
worthy. Everything we read in Revelations is directly linked to Jesus. And that's why Jesus is described here as the lion. Now, as an avid sports fan, I'll give you a little bit of a sidetrack here. The word victory actually comes from the word Greek, and it's called Nike. The word Nike actually means to conquer, to triumph, to prevail, and to overcome, which is also where we get the brand Nike. So victory, in case you ever get question on Jeopardy. But that's not it. So we have the lion, and Jesus as the lion on the throne, ready to open the scroll. But then we also see another picture of Jesus in a different light. And here's what it says. It says, and then I saw a lamb that looked like it has been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represents the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. So we're going from one extreme, the lion, to the other extreme, the lamb. And it's still the same Jesus. The lamb represents him dying on our cross. That's why it says that he had been slaughtered. Because in case you don't know and you've not accepted this in your life, I want you to know that Jesus died for your sins. He lived a perfect life on earth, and then he came and he put himself as a lamb to slaughter, and he died for our sins. But it didn't end there. And I almost missed it, so I want to make sure we don't miss it together. And I highlighted it for you here because it says, but it is now standing. And as I was preparing for this message, I wondered, well, why would a slaughtered lamb be standing? That makes no sense. But then it occurred to me, why? Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross, he rose again. He overcame death, and that's what makes him worthy. That's why he can be the lion, and he can be the slaughtered lamb, now standing and allowing us to have a future, to have eternity, and that's what John is trying to tell us. So you can see there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different beings flying around, but ultimately, we get invited into the throne room of Jesus. We get to see him on the throne, ready to call judgment, but with judgment comes mercy. And then we see him as the solution to the problem because nobody else was good enough to open the scroll and to, to allow us to have a future except for him because he was the lion and the lamb, the slaughtered lamb who is now standing. Now, this is kind of the backdrop of chapter 4 and 5. And maybe you're sitting here wondering, okay, so... What does it have to do with me? I mean, it's all good and well, and I take some notes, and it's great, but how does that apply to me and my life? And that's where I want to spend the remainder of our time with together. Because I think a scene like this, I mean, you're talking about the throne room of Jesus. He's sitting there, and just imagine it for a moment. It, it almost calls us to respond in some way, doesn't it? It calls us to say something. I mean, either we believe that and we're, we need to do something about it or we just sit back, but I, a response has to happen. And so I want to share with you how the elders, the beings, all of the angels responded to Jesus on the throne. And I think it gives us a picture of how we need to respond to him as well. And so there's three parts to this, but the bottom line is the way they respond is in worship. They worship Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, okay, so they're singing some songs, great. But there's a lot of different facets to worship. 
Let me just define worship for us here real quick. Uh, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, speaks, reveals, creates, redeems, orders, and blesses. So it's our response to what Jesus has done for us. That's what we call worship. And there's many different ways that we can worship. And I'm just going to highlight three, but I want to encourage you, if you get our Beyond the Weekend devotionals every week through your email, um, you can sign up easily to stop at the Welcome Center. But if you already do them this week sometime, I'm going to unveil some of the other ways that we can worship. But I only have time to highlight three with us this morning because it's directly related to the passage that we're talking about. And the first one, the first way that they respond to is this. They fall down. Revelation 5 there says it this way. And when he took the scroll and the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held golden bowls filled with incense, which represents the prayers of God's people. So their response, here, let me just look at verse 4, 9, and 10 as well. Whether the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. Worship is humbling ourselves. Worship is acknowledging that God is God and I am not God. It is understanding that we need to humble ourselves before him and give him the honor and glory and worship that he deserves, the praise that he deserves. And that's why it drove the elders and the living beings into a physical response to this situation. And that's why, maybe you've wondered here and you come from a different church background or maybe you're not church and you always wonder like, well, why do they clap at the end of a song? I mean, don't get me wrong, Jeremy and his worship team are doing a phenomenal job, but we don't clap because we're in a concert and we clap to them. When we clap after a song, it's because we acknowledge that, God, you are amazing, and it's a physical response that we give. Maybe you've seen people raise hands when they worship, and that's okay because there is just a physical response. It's a, it's a symbol of lifting up Jesus because of what they do. And so if you're comfortable, you're more than welcome to do that, but you don't have to. It's just another way to worship. A lot of times when we're overwhelmed with what Jesus has done, we truly understand it drives us to a physical response, which is what it did to the elders. They fell down before him. Now, that's one way to worship. There's another way to worship, and that is probably the one that you're most used to when you think about worship, and that is singing songs, right? And so we see even in this book of Revelation here, a lot of different people singing different songs. And so verse Revelation 5, 6, um, 9 to 10 says it this way. This is the elders and living beings. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break the seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe, nation, and language, and people, and nation. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. So the reason here it says a new song um, means that we just simply don't know if this is a new song that they just came up with, like a jazz musician that starts improvising all of a sudden, or maybe this is the new quality. So for all the people that can sing well, like myself, and you're always self-conscious when we're singing, and you're glad that the music is so loud so nobody else can hear you, I think one of the promises we have here is that in heaven, even my, so my song is going to sound good to Jesus. How about that? So there's some hope for all of us, um, but it it could also mean that there's just a new song. It's just a new kind of quality that we get to have in fellowship with Jesus. There's another song, though, that um, the living beings are singing here. It says, day after day and night after night, they kept on saying, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is still to come. And the reason why I want to show you this song is because that is exactly the song that we're going to sing later. Now, I don't know if it's the same tune. I'm not saying we figured out what the song looks like in, in heaven one day, but it's our representative way right now to acknowledge that, to respond in the same way as the living beings doing in the book of Revelation is to give him the glory and to call him holy. So the elders, the living beings are singing. How about the angels? Look at this. And then I looked again, and I heard voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders, and they sang a mighty chorus. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So not only do human beings and the elders sing, the entire angels start singing into with us. And then last, everybody together sings. And so I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they all sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders, again, they fell down and they worshiped Jesus. So they fell down they worshiped, they sang songs, but there's one other way that they worshiped, and it's one of the ways that we don't always think about in worship, so I wanted to highlight it for you as we're wrapping up. It's a simple thing that they do, but it's a hard thing that I think is important for us as well because it doesn't come naturally to us, and the world around us doesn't teach us this way, and so I wanted to highlight it is because they gave what they had. Look at Revelations 4 and 10. The 24 elders fall down, and they worship the one sitting on the throne. And they laid their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive honor, a glory and honor and power. And you created all things, and they existed because you created what you pleased. So what's happening here is um, a few of those living beings and a few of the humans in heaven become crowns. Jesus talks about that. And it's kind of a reward for good behavior, okay, and for, for following his principles and for following his and being obedient to what he wants us to do. It doesn't get us into heaven. Our good works don't do that. It's Jesus that does. But there is a promise that we get a crown if, um, if he thinks it's worthy. But what I want us to remember is that they could have sat and had these crowns on and said, hey, look how I'm better than this guy, and look how I'm better than her. And, you know, oh, man, I deserve all the honor here. And look, uh, I've got a crown. You don't. Then, and then, and then, right? But that's not what they do. What they do is they recognize something. They recognize that it all belongs to Jesus in the first place. And yes, he gives us a crown, but it's our responsibility not to be the owner of that crown, but truly the manager and to give it back to him and to honor him in our worship. And I know in my life, a lot of times I think it's my house, my bank account, my car, my 401k, whatever your possessions are, whatever you're passionate about. But it helps me to remember that I am not the owner of any of this. If anything, Jesus allowed me to have these things to be a manager, to do the best what I can with what he has given me. And if that's a lot, great. And if that's a little, that's okay too. Because it's not ours. It's our responsibility of how we respond to it. And what they do here, the elders, is they put it back to Jesus and to worship him in the same way. So to sum up, what, we're gonna, what we talked about here is we see Jesus walking into the throne room. We see that he is sitting on the throne, right? He's the lamb. He's the lion. He's been slaughtered. He's now standing. 
And when John starts to cry because there's no solution of who's going to open the scrolls and open the unlock the future for us, he is also the one that rescues us, that gives us a future, that allows us to enter heaven and to be with him forever. And what does that mean for us? It's that we need to respond in a similar fashion. It needs for us to recognize that he is God and we are not. And that's why we fall down in front of him, humbling ourselves in a physical response to show him how much we appreciate what he has done for us. Then it drives us to sing songs to honor and glory him. And then we give it back to him, anything that we have received, because it is his in the first place. We're not the owners. We're merely the managers. And so as we finish up our time, I don't think there's a better way to end our service than just to simply worship. Worship God and sing songs to his glory. And not just any songs. I mean, there's some great songs out there. But we're going to sing two songs that are directly related to the words that we have just looked at in chapter 4 and 5. And so I invite you to stand up with me. And Jeremy and the worship team are going to lead us in this first song. And this first song is called, You Are Worthy. And it's your opportunity to respond to him. It's your opportunity, just you and him. I want you maybe just to close your eyes for a moment. And to imagine you are John and you're walking into this throne room and Jesus opens the doors to heaven. And there he is sitting on the throne. And now it's your chance to respond, to tell him what you think and how you feel about him. And so as we sing this, let's not worry about what our neighbors think. We're going to turn on the lights so you, can see, so you don't have to be distracted by others. And the song makes it really easy. And so since this is kind of a new song, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. So Jeremy is going to just simply ask some questions. And in response, all you got to do is just say, we do. And our worship team has helped you figure this out. But it's your opportunity to respond to him on the throne. So let's worship together. <laughs>